Father, we commit in this hour to your will, to your hand, to your glory. This is, in one sense, the most glorious of all worship services during our year of worshiping you together. And so we praise you that we still have freedom to meet, and you've restored that freedom, though it were lost for a little while. We praise you, O Father, for this message, for the message of the cross, the message of the resurrection, and what you did for us on the cross, and what you proved to us by your resurrection. And I ask, O Father, that you would give us ears to hear, especially those here today who are just curious. They think it's, and believe it's a safe place here, and it is. But, oh, Father, I pray that you would enable them to leave with much more than what they came with today, that they would leave today knowing that they have been transformed from the heart or perhaps a little more willing to consider the possibility that Jesus really is risen from the dead, just as he promised, and what the implications of that are. Well, Father, I pray that you would cause them to be born again to a living hope for your great glory and for their own great joy, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Man's greatest fear is death. God's greatest provision is resurrection to all who will believe. In 65 AD, an anonymous author wrote a letter to his Jewish brothers about the glory of Jesus Christ and the need to hold fast and draw near to him. We, feel, we find that 13-chapter word of exhortation, as he calls it, in, in the Bible, in a chapter, or we would say in a book called Hebrews. You can find it kind of toward the end of the Bible. In the second chapter of that text, we read the following words, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Here's what he says. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, Beloved, this morning I want to talk to you about death and resurrection. And the climax of this message is going to be found in the passage we started with this morning, namely 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and so you could probably just make your way there now, and we'll come to it. I'm not going to have you stand this morning. This is more of a topical sermon, so I don't have a specific text that we're going to unpack entirely. Rather, I just want to talk to you about resurrection and the death that precedes it. Now, my goal for this message is to help you 
get some sense of how magnificent the resurrection of Jesus Christ really is. But before we can talk about resurrection, before we can discuss his resurrection or ours, we need to think carefully about a topic that isn't very pleasant. In fact, it's the subject that engenders fear in the hearts of men, all men, all men and all women, all children, namely death. Believe it or not, it's, it's good for us to think about death. I know that what you've seen on the news in Ukraine has been horrific. And you have probably protected your children from seeing it to a certain degree. And that's entirely appropriate. Nevertheless, it's good for us to think about death. It's good to think about death. Not someone else's death, but your own death. I know that may sound a little morbid to you at first blush, but consider the words of Solomon who said, it is, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of mirth. Mirth is happiness, joy, partying. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to the house of mirth, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The living will lay it to heart. What's he saying? He's saying it's better for you once in a while to say, you know, I'm not going to go to the party. I'm going to sit home for a little while and think about the reality that I'm mortal. And I wonder if I'm living in the light of the fact that I have a short life here to do whatever I'm going to do. It's better to go to the house of mourning. Why? Well, because nobody thinks deeply about the brevity of life and the, in, the inevitable experience of death at a party. Now, how many of you were thinking about death when you were eating Easter breakfast this morning? How many of you had a conversation about, hey, when do you think you're going to die? No one challenges you at a party to wrestle with questions of eternity and the dangers of wasting your short life. That doesn't happen at a celebration. doesn't happen at weddings. doesn't happen at birthday parties. From time to time, it's, it's good to go to the house of mourning and consider the implications of the fact that people die. All people die. Before resurrection, there must be death. And so let's spend a few minutes thinking about death. We find it frightening, perhaps, this thinking about the frightening topic of death. And then we consider afterwards the resurrection and, and all of that will make sense and I hope strike you with power. If you're taking notes, they're really, I'm keeping this really simple, there's only two points. Number one, the terror of death and number two, the glory of resurrection. So let's talk about the first one, the terror of death. Now, it will repay us later to think first about the definition a definition of death. What exactly is death? Have you thought about that? Have you wondered, what, what exactly is this thing called death? Well, at its root, death is all about separation. It's about separation. Consider physical death, for example. When physical death occurs, there is a separation of the spirit from the body. It's not the only separation, but it's the first. 
It's a separation from the spirit, between the spirit and the body. And the Word of God teaches what most of us already believe, namely, that man is more than a physical creature. And it used to be that everybody believed that. Uh, not so much anymore. Like everybody used to know John 3.16, not so much anymore. People used to revere the Bible, not so much anymore. The biblical worldview is being eroded away from our country and our culture. And I'm not here to try to rectify that. The gospel alone can do that. But when you consider, when you believe that mankind is merely physical, that has implications. It has implications of what you will allow. It has implications about what you will do. It has implications about what you will definitely choose not to do if you believe that man is more than just physical. But the way the Word of God portrays it, man is both physical and spiritual. There are those in the world who believe we're only physical. If, if they get hurt, they will say, that never happened. I had a professor in college who told the story of visiting a, um, one of the apostate denominations, and uh, two older women were stepping down some stairs to get out of the church, and one of them fell and was injured, injured her knee, and the other one reached down and, and grabbed her and picked her up, and she said, remember, you, you didn't fall. I mean, that's detachment from reality. We are not just physical. We're not just spiritual. We are both. And that's what the Word of God teaches, and that's what most of us already believe. Every human being has an eternal soul. And when that soul or spirit departs, there is physical death. In fact, in the Bible, James writes very bluntly, the body without the spirit is dead. A body without the spirit is death. It, it, when there's a separation between the spirit and the body, there is death. But death is not merely about separation from one's spirit, separated from the body and spirit. Death also involves separation of persons from other people as well. Loved ones mourn when there is the death of someone close to them. It feels like there is a tearing of the flesh when someone who you have spent years with is suddenly gone. And we have all experienced that to some degree or another. So physical death is about the separation of the, the, the body from the spirit and the separation of the, of the deceased from those who loved him or her. This is physical death. This is physical death. But aside from physical death, the Bible teaches that there is also spiritual death. When spiritual death occurs, there is a separation of a person from God. That's spiritual death. You may think you're alive, but without God, you are spiritually dead. I'm not saying you don't have a spirit. I'm just saying that spirit is not alive in the most important way. 
When spiritual death occurs, there's a separation between the person and God. You, you remember all the way back when God spoke to Adam in the Garden of Eden, he warned him that if he ate of the, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. And he ate of the tree, and he did not immediately die. God was gracious to him. Nevertheless, though he didn't die physically, he died spiritually. And the Apostle Paul points to this when he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that everyone born into the world is dead in their transgressions and sins. That's the problem. That's the problem that resurrection solves. We were all dead in our transgressions and sins. In other words, because we are sinners, we cannot have a relationship with holy God. And many people, and even many pastors who believe they have a relationship with God, don't have a relationship with God. They have a relationship with religion. They have a relationship with some kind of pseudo-spirituality. But they don't have a relationship with God, at least not one that he acknowledges. In that sense, all humans come into the world spiritually dead. We are separated from God. In fact, hell is all about eternal separation from God. Those who die without being reconciled to God will be separated from his grace. They'll be separated from his loving presence. All they will know for eternity is the fire of his eternal justice and holy wrath. Jesus says that in that place, the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. You know what? I, I have a hunch about what the fire is. The fire is just being in the presence of a holy God as a guilty sinner forever. So this is death. No wonder humans fear it. And in addition to the definitions, there's just the fear of the uncertainty. If there's a modicum of truth in any of this, it's enough to scare you. And most people fear death. Even good people fear death. Job, for example, in the Old Testament, who was a righteous man, even by God's estimation, he said this, Death is the king of terrors, Job 18, 14. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that it is an enemy, death is an enemy that must be defeated. And furthermore, the book of Hebrews says that death is used by Satan to keep people in slavery and fear for their entire lives, Hebrews 2, 15, which I read just a little while ago. On the one hand, the fear of death can be a good thing. It can be good for you. It is often the impulse that keeps us alive in the face of danger. If you are crossing, perhaps because of parking problems, you had to park all the way down by Camp Bowie, and you find yourself having to walk across that busy street with your child, and your child bolts away from you and starts running across the street as a bus is coming, there will be fear. 
and it will likely save that child's life and your own. Fear isn't bad. Fear is created by God. If you take a hike through Mineral Wells State Park, as we used to many times do, for example, you may, you may walk along the path that leads you near the rocky cliff, but fear of death will keep the wise person from stepping too close to the edge. On the other hand, the prospects of death cause some people to live in spiritual fear. They don't respond well to the thought of death. Their thought is, well, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And I don't think by that he, he necessarily means let's, let's go binge on food and get drunk on alcohol. I, I think all he's saying is let's just make the priority of life that we eat and we drink and we, we get the best out of life we possibly can, and then we die. That's hopeless. And that's not what God has promised. But it is possible to live in fear in other ways. Fear of disease. Fear of dying in a car wreck. And some people, in order to not die these ways, do all kinds of odd things. Fear of flight, so they won't get on an airplane. Um, some say that's biblical, to not get on an airplane, because the angel said, Lo, I am with you always. <laughs> Fearing of crossing bridges. Fear of gravity. Fear of strangers. Fear of making a bad decision, so you're just paralyzed. You're afraid it will ruin your life. All kinds of fears keep people in bondage all their lives. And at the end of every one of them is death. The fear of death. The fear of death moves them to do crazy things. Irrational fear. Thoughts of death can really be frightening. And to make matters worse, our in our most lucid moments, we are very much aware that no matter how diligent we are to protect ourselves from it, death is an inescapable reality. It's coming. It's coming. All people die. How many people die? All people die. You know what it says in the Greek? All people die. <laughs> death is the great equalizer. Whether you're a filthy drug addict living under a piece of cardboard in a dark alley, or whether you're the President of the United States, everyone succumbs to death eventually. There are no exceptions. By the way, did you guys see that interview on the news a few months ago about the last known living um, Civil War veteran? I always have somebody raise their hand on that. And the answer is no, you, you didn't see that interview because they have all died. Everyone who was in the Civil War have died. Everyone who was in, think about this, everyone who lived through World War I has died. How many have survived? None. Zero. No one from that generation is alive. Isn't that amazing? 
I mean, like we get in our heads that it's disease that causes death, and it's, it's stupidity that causes death, it's, it's injury that causes death, or, or whatever. But there's more to it than that. In fact, I looked this up. The last veteran of World War I was a guy by the name of Frank Woodruff Buckles, who died on February 27, 2011. And it won't be long before the last World War II veteran will have completed his mission in this world as well. Someone recently told the president of an organization that I'm very closely acquainted with that um, some of the employees of that organization came to the president and said, you know, you should buy stand-up desks for all the employees because if, if they get stand-up desks, uh, there will be a 65% less chance that they will die. And the president said, the likelihood of death is 100%. <laughs> we all die. It's always been 100%, and that won't change until we're in heaven. Statisticians tell us that right now, the, the world death rate is 55.3 million people per year. Which, if my math is right, and it seldom is, 151,600 people die every day. Every day. And the older I get, the less rhetorical all of this sounds. And there's another dynamic that we have to wrestle with as well, and this one is the most fearful of all. After death, we must give an account of our life. Listen, if you, if you are struggling with what is Christianity or should I believe in God, listen, you don't have to struggle with that. You already know the answer. You don't know all the theology, surely, and you may have questions about the gospel, surely. But you already know two things. Number one, there is a God. And number two, you are accountable to him. How do I know there's a God? Because the whole universe screams his name. This is not a whisper, it is everywhere. I saw a man tell the story about how he was walking from his house to his office, which was only 20, 15, 20 feet away from the door of his house. And just to see what would happen, it was the fall, he grabbed three leaves, four leaves, and he, he set them down in order, four leaves between each door, you know, from one door to the other, four leaves in a line. And his wife came over and she said, hey, why did, why did you put those leaves on the ground like that? And he said, why do you think I put the leaves on the ground like that? I mean, they could have just happened that way. And she's like, that's dumb. <laughs> I mean, there's order here. Order doesn't come from disorder. Life does not come from non-life. This is scientific fact. And when you get to the bottom of that and say, oh yeah, 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 but you're not including the equation of time. Billions and billions of years. Listen, that's not science, that's faith. That's more faith than is required to believe that Jesus is God, he created everything, and he died on the cross for our sins. That's easy to believe. 
But the nonsense equation, nothing plus no one equals everything, that's too much to believe. It doesn't make any sense. And so these two things we know. There is a God and we are accountable to him. The book of Hebrews says again, it is appointed for man to die once and after that, the judgment. The judgment. Your life will be judged. And you won't be able to say to God, don't be so judgy. He is the judge. If you feel bad by, because someone said something to you that sounded judgy, you have no idea. The wrath, the terror, the fear that you may face when you see the real judge face to face. Death is an inescapable reality. The ushers want into accountability before the creator. As one author explains, death is not a, a guaranteed transition to a peaceful non-existence or nirvana, nor is heaven the default destiny of those who die. Your existence in eternity will be determined by the perfectly righteous judgment of a holy God. You see, death is a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing. And I'm not here to tell you that it's not. I'm not here to tell you to don't be afraid. And forgive me for saying this, but much of Christian music keeps telling people, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And the prophets of old kept saying, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. How do people respond to the fear of death? Some try to put it out of their mind by just suppressing the truth about death and the existence of God. But the reality is everyone knows God's ex God exists. The heavens declare the glory of God. And they see it clear enough. We all see it clear enough. You saw it today when it rained unexpectedly. You see it in the trees that grow. How does that happen? How do they grow up? when there's also such thing as gravity. There are so many systems in place, and if you, if you drop just a couple of them, the world flies apart. The heavens declare the glory of God, and we all see it clearly enough. Therefore, Paul says in Romans 2, verse 20, they are without excuse. We are all without excuse. The reason you say you don't believe in God is because you suppress the idea of the thought of God because you want to be free to sin without any judgment. Some drown their fears of death in the pursuit of pleasure or the accomplishment of uh, certain accomplishments in life or materialism. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Consider this historically. It used to be that if you had a medium-sized house, a pretty nice house, you would have a special room in that house. In fact, right outside this door, um, there is the library. Before it was the library, it was called the parlor. Nobody uses that word anymore. But every house had a parlor. 
And the parlor was the kind of the place that nobody went. You didn't, I mean, you could sit in there and talk, but normally people stayed away from the parlor. But if someone died in your family, which was often babies died, children died, parents died, grandparents died, someone in your family died, they would lay you in state on the table in the parlor. And for many people, it was known as the room of death. It was what it was best known for. And there were some erudite uh, New York women who uh, were part of the, the uh, kind of the, the culture that, that would create new things in architecture and design of houses and things. And then one day, they came to the conclusion, you know what, we got to get rid of the death room. Let's get rid of the parlor because it's the room of death. And so they invented a new room. Do you know what that room is called now? The living room. It's no longer the place of the dead. And then we move, so my point is, we move death a little further away from us. Despite what Solomon says, about thinking about death. And so they pushed it away a little bit. They put in the, the, uh, the living room. So where do they put people who die? Well, they put them in a different home. And now it's called the funeral home. But it's not even called the funeral home anymore. What's it called? It could be the funeral parlor. It could be the funeral home. It could be Greenwood. I mean, everyone knows what Greenwood is, but it doesn't sound anything like death. We push away death. We go to great lengths to keep death at arm's length. Some try to put it out of their minds by suppressing the truth in various ways, but you can't get away from it. Some try to cheat death. There was a heartbreaking story a few years back in the news. A 14-year-old girl in Britain knew she was going to die. She had cancer, and so she appealed to the courts to allow her herself to be cryogenically frozen in a tank of liquid nitrogen. And it was here in the United States that that was going to happen. And hundreds of others, for instance, Walt Disney was one of the first to ask for that. And the hope is, the hope, listen to the word hope, the hope is that someday someone will come up with a cure for death and the disease that brought it about. And they will be thawed and be returned to the world. Beloved, that's not hope, that's hopeless. It's hopelessness. There's one more thing we need to know about death. It, it came into the world by sin. It came into the world by sin. It came into the world through Adam. The Word of God tells us, and we're going to look at this beginning next week in Romans, it tells us that the first man, Adam, served as our representative. And when he sinned, everyone in the human family suffered. Romans 5.12. Therefore, Paul writes, just as 
sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. And back in chapter 3, he revealed the consequences of sin by stating that the wages of sin is what, class? The wages of sin is death. And so you see, the biggest problem mankind has today is not the war in Ukraine. It's not global warming. It's not racial disunity. It's not the price of gas. It's not a rocky or abusive marriage. It's not what someone said about you on Facebook or Instagram. Your greatest problem is that the wages of sin is death, and the reason that's a problem is because you're a sinner. You sin by birth and by choice. You're a sinner. We are all born with an un, in an unreconciled state with God. We are born spiritually dead. Because of sin, there is not the slightest possibility that it will go well for you on the day of judgment. When you see the Lord face to face, Furthermore, there's nothing you can do to fix that. Nothing you can do to fix that. So, that's pretty hopeless. What can be done? This is where Jesus Christ comes in. We've learned about the terror of death. Now let's briefly discover the glory of the resurrection because of sin, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, but he never stopped loving them. He never stopped loving them. In fact, we're told in the Bible that before the creation of the world, God hatched a plan to rescue sinners in such a way that would bring sinners eternal life and simultaneously bring the Son of God glory. And that's what Jesus' life and death were all about. How can sinners be rescued and the Son be glorified? Well, there's only one way. God the Son would have to become a man. He would have to set aside all the rights and privileges of being God and be born of a virgin girl and live the kind of life that would perfectly satisfy the requirements of the law of God on our behalf and then die in our place as if he were the most evil, vile lawbreaker who ever lived. Only then could sinners be reconciled to God. Only then could they be rescued from the clutches of death. And this Jesus did. Listen to how Paul describes it. Ephesians, I'm sorry, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Though he, that is Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
That's the whole story of Jesus' life from before he left heaven until he returned. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sakes God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In 2 Corinthians 8.9, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you would become rich, spiritually rich. Rich in God, rich in Christ. You know, some of the most joyful people I've met around the world were the most poverty-stricken people you'd ever want to know. They love to sing about Christ. They love to worship him. They take risks for him. They've got nothing, hardly anything, compared to us to lose. You may say, that's wonderful news, this whole bit about what Jesus did. But where does direction come in? If what we needed for salvation has, has come to us through Jesus' perfect life and bloody death, what was the point of the resurrection? Why did Jesus have to die? <coughs> the answer may be simpler and infinitely more profound than you think. Listen, my friend, Jesus had to rise from the grave because he could not save us if he were a dead Messiah. He would be no different than Buddha or Mohammed or anyone else who claimed to be... Yes, Mohammed. Today you can look at their graves. The difference between the three, Muhammad's tomb is full. Buddha's tomb is full. Jesus' tomb is empty. And not only is it empty, but there were over 500 people who saw him after it became empty. Eternal life comes to you through union with the living Christ, not a dead Christ. In fact, everything we receive from God, everything we receive from God comes to us through the living Christ. And so we can look at 2 Corinthians 14 and understand Paul's meaning when he says, verse 14, this is... Um, Actually, 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has been raised, has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep, that is, died, in Christ, have perished. Eternally, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know why? Because most Christians suffer for their faith. And they do so willingly. They could have a better life if they wanted it. But they choose not to. 
And they know that that seems stupid in the eyes of the world. And Paul acknowledges it. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been risen. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And that means even if we die in this world, we too will be raised. Look at verse 54. When the perishable, when he says the perishable, he means your body. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? My friends, the remedy for the terror of death is not to suppress the truth about it. It isn't about flooding your life with pleasure and empty distractions. It isn't about a false hope of being frozen in liquid nitrogen or any other foolish strategy to cheat death. The only solution to the terror of death is the living Christ. The life-giving Christ. The living Christ. The risen Christ. When we sing, all I have is Christ, we are not mourning that we didn't get more. Because when we have Christ, we have everything. Everything you need or could ever hope for Anything that you could hope to, to receive from God comes to you through union with Christ, the living Christ, the resurrected Christ. The only question that remains is, how can I be united with this Christ? How can I be united with Christ in the eyes of God? And Paul's answer to that question, very briefly, he offers it in Romans 10 where he says this, this is Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, your Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My friend, are you troubled by your own mortality? Are you afraid of what will happen when you come face to face with God two seconds after you die? Then, my friend, I urge you this very moment, fly to Christ. In your heart, run to Christ. In your soul, quit denying Christ. 
run to him and confess to him that the only thing you have to offer him is your sin. He will receive that, believe it or not. But you should believe it. Ask him to accept you, to receive you, to save you, not on the basis of your good works, but on the basis of Jesus' perfect life and bloody death on the cross on your behalf, which he freely offered in love so that you could be saved. You know you're a sinner. You experience guilt frequently. And there's nothing you can do about that sin except bring it to God. Bring your heart to God and ask him to do what the prophet Jeremiah promised he would one day do. Remove my cold, stony heart and replace it with a living heart that loves God. My dear friends, man's greatest fear is death. But God's greatest provision is resurrection through the living Christ to all who believe. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a precious Sunday for us. And we rejoice in it. We give you thanks for it. Pray, Father, that for anyone who is here, and I have to believe that there are some, who are right now where I once was, dead in my transgressions and sins, having really, though being religious, I knew nothing about God, nothing about the joy of belonging to Christ, nothing about sins forgiven. Oh, Father, would you, by your Spirit, cause them to be born again. Do for them this morning, what Jesus did for Lazarus. Raise them up spiritually. Grant them the experience of spiritual resurrection and change them forever for their own great joy and for the glory of your eternal Son. We pray in Jesus' name.